Chapter 11. Silvery Moon The ride from Luskin was swift indeed, and Trary and his cohorts appeared to any curious onlookers as no more than a shimmering blur in the night wind. The magical mounts left no trail of their passing, and no living creature could have overtaken them. The golem, as always, lumbered tirelessly behind with great stiff-legged strides. So smooth and easy were the seats atop Dendabar's conjured steeds that the party was able to keep up its run past the dawn and throughout the entire next day with only short rest for food. Thus, when they set their camp after the sunset of the first full day on the road, they'd already put the crags behind them. Caterbury fought an inner battle that first day. She had no doubt that Entreri and the new alliance would overtake Brunner. As the situation stood now, Caterbury would only be a detriment to her friends, a pawn for Entreri to play at his convenience. She could do little to remedy the problem, unless she found some way to diminish, if not overcome, the grip of terror that the assassin held on her. That first day she spent in concentration, blocking out her surroundings as much as she could, and searching her inner spirit for the strength and courage that she would need. Bruner had given her many tools over the years to wage such a battle, skills of discipline and self-confidence that had seen her through many difficult situations. On the second day of the ride, then more confident and comfortable with her situation, Caterbury was able to focus on her captors. Most interesting were the glares that Jardin and Entreri shot each other. The proud soldier had obviously not forgotten the humiliation he had suffered the night of their first meeting on the field outside of Luskin. Entreri, keenly aware of the grudge, even fueling it with his willingness to bring issues in confrontation, kept an untrusting eye on the man. This growing rivalry may prove to be her most promising, perhaps her only, hope of escaping, Caterbury thought. She conceded that Bach was an indestructible, mindless, destroying machine, beyond any manipulation she might try to lay upon it, and she learned quickly that Sidney offered nothing. Caterbury had tried to engage the young mage in conversation the second day, but Sidney's focus was too narrow for any diversions. She would be neither sidetracked nor persuaded for her obsession in any way. She didn't even acknowledge Caterbury's greeting when they sat down for their midday meal. And when Caterbury pestered her further, Sidney instructed Entreri to keep the whore away. Even in the failed attempt, though, the aloof mage had aided Caterbury in a way that neither of them could foresee. Sidney's open contempt and insults came as a slap in Caterbury's face and instilled in her another tool that would help to overcome the paralysis of her terror, anger. They passed the halfway point of their journey on the second day, the landscape rolling surrealistically by them as they sped along and camped in the small hills northeast of Nesmi, with the city of Luskin now fully 200 miles behind them. Campfires twinkled in the distance, a patrol from Nesmi, Sidney theorized. We should go there and learn what we may, Entreri suggested, anxious for news of his target. You and I, Sidney agreed, we can get there and back before half the night is through. Entreri looked at Caterbury. What of her? He asked the mage. I would not leave her with Jerdan. You think that the soldier would take advantage of the girl? Sidney replied. I assure you that he is honorable. That is not my concern. Entreri smirked. I fear not for the daughter of Brunner Battlehammer. She would dispose of your honorable soldier and be gone into the night before we ever returned. Canterbury didn't welcome the compliment. 
She understood that Andreri's comment was more of an insult to Jerden, who was off gathering firewood, than any recognition of her own prowess, but the assassin's unexpected respect for her would make her task doubly difficult. She didn't want Entreri thinking of her as dangerous, even resourceful, for that would keep him too alert for her to move. Sidney looked to Bach. I go, she told the golem, purposefully loud enough for Caterbury to easily hear. If the prisoner tries to flee, run her down and kill her. She shot Entreri an evil grin. Are you content? He returned her smile and swung his arm out in the direction of the distant camp. Jardin returned then, and Sidney told him of their plans. The soldier didn't seem overjoyed to have Sidney and Entreri running off together, though he said nothing to dissuade the mage. Caterbury watched him closely and knew the truth. Being left alone with her and the golem didn't bother him, she surmised, but he feared any budding friendship between his two roadmates. Caterbury understood, and even expected this, for Jardin was in the weakest position of the three, subservient to Sidney and afraid of Entreri. An alliance between those two, perhaps even a pact excluding Dendibar and the host tower altogether, would at least put him out and, more probably, spell his end. Sure, in the nature of their dark business works against them, Caterbury whispered as Sidney and Entreri left the camp, speaking the words aloud to reinforce her growing confidence. I could help you with that, she offered to Jardin as he worked to complete the campsite. The soldier glared at her. Help, he scoffed. I should make you do it all by yourself. Your anger is known to me, Caterbury countered sympathetically. I myself have suffered at Entreri's foul hands. Her pity enraged the proud soldier. He rushed at her threateningly, but she held her composure and did not flinch. This is work below your station. Jardin stopped suddenly, his anger diffused by his intrigue at the compliment. An obvious ploy, but to Jardin's wounded ego... The young woman's respect came as too welcome to be ignored. What could you know of my station? He asked. I know you're a soldier of Luskin, Caterbury replied, of a group that's feared throughout all the Northland. You should not do the grovel work while the mage and the shadow chaser are off playing in the night. You're making trouble, Jardan growled, and he paused to consider the point. You set the camp, he ordered at length regaining a measure of his own self-respect by displaying his superiority over her. Caterbury didn't mind, though. She went about the work at once, playing her subservient role without a complaint. A plan began to take definite shape in her mind now, and this phase demanded that she make an ally among her enemies, or at least put herself in a position to plant the seeds of jealousy in Jardin's mind. She listened, satisfied, as the soldier moved away, muttering under his breath, before Entreri and Sidney even got close enough for a good view of the encampment, ritualistic chanting told them that this was no caravan from Nesmi. They inched in more cautiously to confirm their suspicions. Long-haired barbarians, dark and tall, and dressed in ceremonial feathered garb, danced a circle around a wooden griffin totem. Uthgart, Sidney explained. The griffin tribe. We are near to Shining White, their ancestral mound. She edged away from the glow of the camp, Come, she whispered. We will learn nothing of value here. And Trevi followed her back toward their own campsite. Should we ride now? He asked when they were safely away. Gain more distance from the barbarians. Unnecessary, Sidney replied. The Uthgar will dance the night through. 
All the tribe partakes of the ritual. I doubt they even have sentries posted. You know much about them, the assassin remarked in an accusing tone, a hint to his sudden suspicions that there might be some ulterior plot controlling the events surrounding them. I prepared myself for this journey, Sidney countered. The Uthgard keep few secrets. Their ways are generally known and documented. Travelers in the Northland would do well to understand these people. I'm fortunate to have such a learned road companion, Antreri said, bowing in sarcastic apology. Sidney, her eyes straight ahead, did not respond. But Antreri would not let the conversation die so easily. There was method in his leading line of suspicions. He had consciously chosen this time to play out his hand and reveal his distrust even before they'd learned the nature of the encampment. For the first time, the two were alone, without Caterbury or Jardin to complicate the confrontation, and Antreri meant to put an end to his concerns, or put an end to the mage. "'When am I to die?' he asked bluntly. Sidney didn't miss a step. "'When the fates decree it, as with all of us.' "'Let me ask the question a different way,' Antreri continued, grabbing her by the arm and turning her to face him. When are you instructed to try and kill me? Why else would Dendibar have sent the golem? And Treri reasoned. The wizard puts no store in packs and honor. He does what he must to accomplish his goals, and in the most expedient way, and then eliminates those he no longer needs. When my value to you is ended, I am to be slain, a task you may find more difficult than you presume. You are perceptive, Sidney replied coolly. You have judged Dendabar's character well. He would have killed you simply to avoid any possible complications, but you have not considered my own role in this. On my insistence, Dendabar put the decision of your fate in my hands. She paused a moment to let Entreri weigh her words. He could easily kill her right now, they both knew that, so the candor of her calm admission of a plot to murder him halted any immediate actions and forced him to hear her out. I am convinced that we seek different ends to our confrontation with the dwarf's party, Sidney explained, and thus I have no intention of destroying a present and potentially future ally. In spite of his ever-suspicious nature, Entreri fully understood the logic in her line of reasoning. He recognized many of his own characteristics in Sydney. Ruthless, she let nothing get in the way of her chosen path. But she did not stray from that path for any diversion, no matter how strong her feelings. He released her arm. But the golem travels with us, he said absently, turning into the empty night. Does Dendibar believe that we needed to defeat the dwarf and his companions? My master leaves little to chance, Sidney answered. Bach was sent to deal Dendibar's claim on that which he desires, protection against unexpected trouble from the companions, and against you. And Trevi carried her line of thinking a step further. The object the wizard desires must be powerful indeed, he reasoned. Sidney nodded. Tempting for a younger mage, perhaps. What do you imply? Sidney demanded, angry that Antreri would question her loyalty to Dendibar. The assassin's assured smile made her squirm uncomfortably. 
The golem's purpose is to protect Dendibar against unexpected trouble from you. Sidney stammered, but could not find the words to reply. She hadn't considered that possibility. She tried logically to dismiss Andreri's outlandish conclusion, but the assassin's next remark clattered her ability to think. Simply to avoid any possible complications, he said grimly, echoing her earlier words. The logic of his assumptions slapped her in the face. How could she think herself above Dendibar's malicious plotting? The revelation sent shivers through her, but she had no intention of searching for the answer with Entreri standing next to her. We must trust in each other, she told him. We must understand that we both benefit from the alliance and that it costs neither of us anything. Send the golem away, then, Entreri replied. An alarm went off in Sidney's mind. Was Entreri trying to instill doubt in her merely to gain an advantage in their relationship? We do not need the thing, he said. We have the girl, and even if the companions refuse our demands, we have the strength to take what we want, he returned the major's suspicious look. You speak of trust. Sidney did not reply, and started again for their camp. Perhaps she should send Bach away. The act would satisfy Entreri's doubts about her, though it certainly would give him the upper hand against her if any trouble did come to pass. But dismissing the golem might also answer some of the even more disturbing questions that weighed upon her. The questions about Dendabar. The next day was the quietest and the most productive of the ride. Sidney fought with her turmoil about the reasons for the golem's presence. She'd come to the conclusion that she should send Bach away, if for no better reason than to prove to herself her master's trust. And Trevor watched the telltale signs of her struggle with interest, knowing that he had weakened the bond between Sidney and Dendibar enough to strengthen his own position with the young mage. Now, he simply had to wait and watch for his next chance to realign his companions. Likewise, Caterbury kept her eye out for more opportunities to cultivate the seeds she had planted in Jerdan's thoughts. The snarls that she saw the soldier hide from Entreri and from Sidney told her that her plan was off to a grand start. They made Silvery Moon shortly after noon on the following day. If Entreri had any doubts left about his decision to join the host tower's party, they were dismissed when he considered the enormity of their accomplishment. With the tireless magical steeds, they had covered nearly 500 miles in four days, and in the effortless ride, the absolute ease in guiding their mounts, they were hardly worn when they arrived in the foothills of the mountains just west of the enchanted city. The river Ralvin, Jerden at the front of the party called back to them, and a guard post. Pass it by, Entreri replied. No, Sidney said, these are the guides across the moon bridge. They will let us pass, and their aid will make our journey into the city much easier. And Trevi looked back to Bach, lumbering up the trail behind them. All of us? he asked incredulously. Sidney had forgotten about the golem. Bach, she said when the golem had caught up to them. You are no longer needed. Return to Dendibar and tell him that all goes well. Caterbury's eyes lit up at the thought of sending the monster back, and Jerdan, startled, looked back with growing anxiety. Watching him, Caterbury saw another advantage to his unexpected turn. By dismissing the golem, Sidney gave more credence to the fears of an alliance between Sidney and Entreri that Caterbury had planted upon the soldier. The golem did not move. I said go, Sidney demanded. 
she saw Entreri's unsurprised stare from the corner of her eye. Damn you, she whispered to herself. Still, Bach did not move. You are indeed perceptive, she snarled at Entreri. Remain here, then, she hissed at the golem. We shall stay in the city for several days. She slipped down from her seat and stomped away, humbled by the assassin's wry smile at her back. What of the mounts? Jardin asked. They were created to get us the silvery moon, no more, Sidney replied, and even as the four walked away down the path, the shimmering lights that were the horses faded into a soft blue glow, then they were gone altogether. They had little trouble getting through the guard post, especially when Sidney identified herself as a representative of the host tower of the Arcane. Unlike most cities in the hostile Northland, bordering on paranoia in their fears of outsiders, Silvery Moon did not keep itself hemmed in within foreboding walls and lines of wary soldiers. The people of this city looked upon visitors as an enhancement to their culture, not as a threat to their way of life. One of the Knights of Silver, the guardsman at the post on the Ralvin, set the four travelers to the entrance of the Moonbridge, an arcing, invisible structure that spanned the river before the main gate of the city. The strangers crossed tentatively, uncomfortable for the lack of visible material under their feet. But soon enough, they found themselves strolling down the meandering roadways of the magical city. Their pace unconsciously slowed, caught under the infectious laziness, the relaxed, contemplative atmosphere that dissipated even Entreri's narrow-visioned intensity. Tall, twisting towers and strangely shaped structures greeted them at every turn. No single architectural style dominated Silvery Moon unless it was the freedom of a builder to exercise his or her personal creativity without fear of judgment or scorn. The result was a city of endless splendors, not rich in counted treasures, as were Waterdeep and Mirabar, its two mightiest neighbors, but unrivaled in aesthetic beauty. A throwback to the earliest days of the realms, when elves and dwarves and humans had enough room to roam under the sun and stars without fear of crossing some invisible borderline of a hostile kingdom, Silvery Moon existed in open defiance of the conquerors and tyrants of the world, a place where no one held claim over another. People of all the good races walked freely here and without fear, down every road and alleyway on the darkest of nights, and if the travelers passed by someone and were not greeted with a welcoming word, it was only because the person was too profoundly engaged in meditative contemplation. The dwarf's party is less than a week out of Long Saddle, Sidney mentioned as they moved through the city. We may have several days to wait. Where do we go? And Trevi asked, feeling out of place. The values that obviously took precedence in Silvery Moon were unlike those of any city he'd ever encountered, and were completely foreign to his own perceptions of the greedy, lusting world. Countless inns line the streets, Sidney answered. Guests are plentiful here and are welcomed openly. Then our task in finding the companions, once they arrive, shall prove difficult indeed, Jardan groaned. Not so, Sidney replied wryly. The dwarf comes to Silvery Moon in search of information. Soon after they arrive, Bruner and his friends will make their way to the Vault of Sages, the most renowned library in all the North. And Trevi squinted his eyes and said, And we will be there to greet them.